there. This is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we usually slow walk through Dante's masterwork comedy. We're way down in the bottoms of Inferno, in the bottoms of the universe, in the base of everything on an ice sheet, and we're going to take a break. This is an interpolated episode in this podcast in which I would like to explore something that's been happening repeatedly around us, but we've never really stopped and talked fully about it, and that is the use of similes in Dante's poem. There are at least 400 of them over the course of comedy, probably more. It depends on how you count. If you count strictly by the things that say as such and such, so such and such, then you come out around 400, but there may be even more similes depending on how you look at certain passages. I want to explore across comedy so far the similes we've come to. I think that we can divide these similes into several different categories, and I'm going to give you examples of these similes and kind of talk through what Dante is doing in the poetics. This is going to be a very literary episode of this podcast. They're not going to be any one passage. There's going to be a lot of passages that I'm going to refer to. I'm going to use the Anthony Esselin translation, and the reason I'm using that is because I want you to hear these similes not in my translation. We're going to take these similes in various groups. There's going to be six of them, and I'm going to give you examples of how the similes work in Inferno and talk through a little bit about Dante's poetical use of this very classical and classic poetic form. Let's start with the first simile of the whole poem, comedy. If you remember, our pilgrim at the front of the poem comes awake in this dark wood, tries to climb this hill that he sees in front of him. He feels as if he's making some sort of progress out of the dark wood. The passage in Canto 1 starts at line 22, and it's going to run through line 27, and this is it. And as a man with labored breathing drags his legs out of the water and ashore, fixes his eyes upon the dangerous shore, so to my mind, while still a fugitive, turned back to gaze again at that pass which never let a man escape alive. We talked a bit about this simile in the opening episodes of this podcast. It could be from Aeneas, uh, from the Aeneid, but it could be about Aeneas's shipwreck off Carthage. It's Aeneid Book 1, line 180, right in there. And it may also be a Hero and Leander reference. Remember, Hero would put the light up in her room, and when Leander saw it, he would swim across the Bosporus to get to her, and then he's tricked, and he ends up drowning. It could be a Hero and Leander reference, but what I think is interesting is Dante begins the poem with a simile used to describe his inner state. This is supposed to be about finding relief, having been in really bad straits, swimming really rough waters, and now finding some kind of relief. What this simile is, and it becomes common in comedy, is it's a simile used to describe the inner landscape of the pilgrim. As a man with labored breathing drags his legs out of the water and ashore fixes his eyes upon the dangerous sea. You know, phew. 
I got through that. I turn back. I see the raging sea, and I got through it. The inner life of the pilgrim is being laid out for us. This bit that he Dante chooses as the opening official simile of the poem marks him as really close to being modern because now we think of similes as largely unraveling the inner landscape of a poet. This will recur repeatedly in comedy. The pilgrim's inner landscape will be repeatedly revealed through simile. I'm going to jump way ahead to Canto 9. They're standing in front of the walls of Dis. They can't get in. They're being threatened that Medusa is going to show up. And if she shows up, apparently the pilgrim is essentially dead. Virgil tries to cover uh, Dante's eyes so that he is not destroyed by Medusa. And then comes the heavenly messenger. This is Canto 9 starting at line 64 and reading through line 81. And now, above the water, churned with scum, broke such a fearful crash, it sent the shakes through either shore, the roarings, such as come whenever a headstrong gale is raised by war, of heat and cold massed up in the atmosphere. It batters the woods with nothing to hold it back, slashes and beats limbs down and sweeps them off, drives on Onward in its arrogance of dust, and sets the shepherds and the beast to flee. He freed my eyes, Virgil, that is, freed my eyes and said, Now strain the nerve of your sight there above the ancient sludge where the smoke is the bitterest. As frogs are quick to vanish in the water when they see their enemy, the serpent, come and squat and crouch all quiet at the bottom, I saw more than a hundred souls destroyed, scurried away before the steps of one who passed the waters of the sea. Sticks dry shod. So here comes the messenger walking over sticks, not getting his feet wet. And yet both of these similes inside this passage reveal the pilgrim's inner state, that battling of cold and warm, which creates the atmospherics of storms. This is the pilgrim's befuddlement. The pilgrim is scared. The pilgrim is in turmoil. And then we have this second simile about frogs that jump underwater when a snake comes because they know they're going to get eaten. This is this moment in which we can feel a relief start to set in. And these uh, souls destroyed, a thousand souls, that's a reference to the demons, a thousand souls destroyed, suddenly scatter in every direction. We can see this simile revealing the inner landscape of the pilgrim. Yes, in fact, there are churning waters. And yes, in fact, the demons are scurrying the way frogs do. But in both cases, behind all of that, we can see the pilgrim's turmoil and befuddlement and then his relief that salvation is in fact coming. These are similes, again, used to describe an emotional landscape. And we just could stop and think about this for just a second. The external world is being used to reveal the internal world. Frogs, uh, tempests caused by clashing air fronts, cold and hot air. This bit of the external world is being used to mirror the internal world, and we are only steps 
away, <laughs> only steps away from Wordsworth. We're only steps away from Percy Bysshe Shelley. We're only steps away from Coleridge. We're only steps away from Baudelaire. We're, we're just steps away from this notion that somehow the external world can explain and further elucidate the inner world that's working. And that is one of the dominant ways that Dante uses similes. But there is another dominant way, and it first occurs in Canto Three of Inferno. Here, we're standing on the banks of Acheron, and Charon has arrived with his boat to ferry the damned across. We have the terrifying scene with Charon and his eyes all circled in fire. It's all wild, and the damned hurling themselves toward the shore. We get this simile in the middle of the passage of Macanto 3, and I'm starting at line 109 and running down through line 120. Karen the demon, eyes of fiery coal, signals them all to get into the boat, smacks with his oar the soul that lags behind. As, here's our simile, as in the fall when leaves are lifted off, one drops another till the naked branch sees all its garment lying on the earth. So the bad seed of Adam, one by one, toss themselves from the shore at Karen's sign as hawks returning to the master's call. They cross the murky waters, and before they disembark upon the farther side, another throng has gathered at the shore. We have a double simile here. We actually have the simile of the leaves falling, and then we have it restated as falcons. And we talked about how these similes are fusions of classical similes. That leaves falling bit is actually from Homer, which Dante wouldn't know, but then it's picked up by Virgil, and it's in the Aeneid, book 6, line 309 and forward. There's also a bit of it in Virgil's Georgics, in the second Georgic at line 82. There's probably a fusing of these things together. There's further references to the classical imagery of the falcon here. These are unbelievably classically balanced, fused similes. This seems to be a second sort of simile that Dante uses. These are learned. They are recast from classical literature. They're testing the limits of the reader. Do you know where this is from? Do you know where I'm picking this up from? It's catching and ascertaining whether you are a learned and well-read reader of comedy. It's also testing the limits of the poet. Can I recast, fuse, remake, torque, twist, Virgilian lines, Lucan lines? Can I take what I know and recast it? These are knowledgeable, smarty-pants similes. They test the limits of knowledge itself, the limits of literary knowledge. And I think they're there to make sure that the learned reader is flattered. That sounds a little negative, but okay, I'm going to give it. Flattered that the learned reader is on her or his toes in Dante's days. It would always be his toes, but okay, modern readers, her or his toes or their toes. 
And it's all, they're also there, these classical similes, to make sure that we understand that this poem is connected to a classical past. And that's really important. It seems ultra important for Dante to make sure that we know that comedy is coming out of a tradition of poetry. You might sit down and write a poem today, and you might not worry about I don't know, Baudelaire, since I already mentioned him, or Emily Dickinson, or you might not worry about Pushkin, or you might not worry about other poets quite so much, but you might. And you might want to make sure that you uh, are conveying the idea that your poem comes, let's say, out of a confessional tradition from Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton. You're trying to position your poem inside that landscape. One of my favorite working poets right now, Ellen Bass, very much does this. She continually reminds you of her Plath, Sexton, and other confessional poet background to her own poetry. If you don't know the poem Indigo, go out to my podcast, Lyric Life, about lyric poetry, and listen to that episode about Ellen Bass's poem. Or go out and look at the Bass poem about forgiveness. They are amazing confessional poems. You can see Bass working inside a landscape of previous poets. Again, this comes up repeatedly in comedy. I'm going to jump all the way ahead to Canto 30 and that famed opening. I mean, this is the tenth ditch of the Malibulja, the, the tenth of the evil pouch. We're down here with Master Adam. We're about to start into some really nasty stuff in this medieval hospital of horror. And we get that giant opening bit to Canto 30. Back in the days when Juno's wrath was fired against the Theban blood of Semele, and she avenged herself against them twice. She made King Athamas grow insane that when he saw his wife with either arm carrying the burden of his two sons, he cried, let's lay the nets so I can catch the lioness and the lion cubs at the pass. And then he thrust his ruthless clutches forth and snatched the one Laercus, whirled him round, brained him on a stone. Then with the other, the mother leapt into the sea and drowned. And when the wheel of fortune turned about to bring Troy down for all its daring pride, the king and kingdom were at once wiped out. Pathetic Hecuba in captivity gloom, seeing the strangling of Polyxena, her daughter, and the sad discovered doom of murdered Polydorus on the shore, frenzied and mad, went howling like a dog so badly that her grief twisted her mind. But none so fury-ridden in Thebes or Troy had ever lunged with such ferocity to bite at beasts or even rip men's limbs as I saw two souls, Johnny Skiki and Mira, naked, pale as death, tearing away and snapping as they ran like the tusked swine who set loose from the sty. This is a long, complicated, classical opening, and it harkens back to that simile in Canto 3. These 
beautifully balanced, crafted similes from classical literature that twist the source material, that make sure you understand the poem is connected to a classical past, that Dante daringly tests the limits of classical learning, the limits of poetry, the limits of his own craft. This is very different from similes that attempt to show the emotional inner landscape of the pilgrim. There's a third kind of simile, and it's much easier to talk about that recurs very often in comedy. These are what I would call simple similes. So while we have inner landscape similes and we have classical balanced and crafted, not that the others aren't crafted, but you know what I mean. You got to really work at the craft of working these historical and literary references into the poem. These are simple similes. I'm back in Canto 5 with the lustful. I'm right at the moment in which we see them up on the wind. And I'm at line 37, and I'm going to read down through line 49. I learned that such a torment was designed for the damned who were wicked in the flesh, who made their reason subject to desire. And as a flock of starlings, winter-beaten, founder upon their wings in widening turns, so did that whirlwind whip those evil souls, flinging them here and there and up and down, nor were they ever comforted by hope, no hope for rest or even lesser pain. And as the cranes go cawing out their songs, forming a long streak in the air, I saw approaching us and trailing cries of woe, shades blown our way by the great battling winds. Sure, these do explain the wailing inner landscape of the damned and their physical position, but these are rather simple similes. And here's what I think you can notice over the course of Inferno and on into Purgatory and Paradiso. Dante uses simple similes when the imaginative landscape becomes increasingly complex and unbelievable. So here, early in the poem, we have these shades up on these blistering winds, blowing them about in the circle of lust. And it is a great imaginative sequence. And for especially a medieval reader, it may be hard to imagine how exactly does this work and what does this look like? And you can see Dante's imagination here with the soul's blowing about like cranes wailing in the wind, you could see his imagination in full spectrum and in full engagement right here as he creates this wild landscape of lust. Here, he uses, and in other places, over and over again, simple similes when the imaginative landscape gets really wildly uh, what do I say, drawn, wildly engaged, when it seems like it just approaches the level of believability. I mean, here's another example. It's in Canto 7. It's with Plutus standing there screaming, Papa Satan, Papa Satan, Alepi. This clucking Plutus. Virgil throws the gob muck at him. And Virgil says at line eight of Canto 7, shut up, you cursed wolf of hell. Swallow your rage and let it gnaw your guts. His passage, that is the pilgrim's passage, to the hollows has its cause. It is willed on high whence Michael brought vengeance against the arrogant revolt. 
As in a fresh breeze, when the ship's mast snaps, the sails once puffed and stretched fall in a heap, so did that cruel beast drop to the earth. This is another moment. Plutus, this mythological figure, it's so wild. He's standing there, but he's chicken-like and clucking, and he's speaking this crazy language. Dante's making up a language from him. It's all so imaginatively engaged that we get this fairly simple simile about the sails deflating and in the same way Plutus falls down. I think, again, Dante uses very simple similes to explain complex imaginative landscapes. Let me give you one more example of this kind of problem. It's the opening of Canto 12, and we're about to come down the scree-filled slope and find the Minotaur. Again, this landscape is incredibly imaginatively engaged. We're about to enter the circle of violence, the river of blood, the wood of the suicides, the burning sands with the fire falling on them like rain or hail. I mean, really, we are entering a wildly imaginative place. So we start at Canto 12 this way. This descent was a jagged, bouldered one, and for the loathsome thing before the bank, a place which any eye would gladly shun. As at the slips of Mar, Dante refers to the Adige River and where it flows. So the slips of Mar at the Adige River that struck the flank of the river Adige, this side of Trent, because of earthquake or support too weak to the plain from the very mountaintop, the rock face is so smashed into destroyed. It makes a path for someone up above. Such was the way to go down this gorge here where they finally find the Minotaur, the infamy of Crete. This is a scene, again, a geographical scene, that many people in Dante's own day would know, this landslide and the DJ and the way the slope has given way. And this explains this slope. A rather common, for Dante's day, simile to say, oh, it's, it's like that rock slide over there, to explain what's going to become a crazy imagined landscape with the Minotaur and the River of Blood and centaurs and riding on the bag of centaurs, this simple simile kind of gives us comfort. And we should note that our poet, I think, is giving us comfort with these simple similes. He's trying to say, okay, this is really wild. I mean, what you're seeing here is crazy and it is beyond imagination. But just seeing stuff kind of like this before, I, I do this endlessly in the podcast, right? I take a passage from Dante and then I try to pull it up into the modern world and say, oh, it's like when you do XYZ at the supermarket or when you drive down the road. XYZ. I try to pull it up and out of the complicated landscape of comedy and into our world to try to simplify it and clarify it. But I'm also trying to help you be comfortable with incredibly complex passages in the poem. And I think that Dante is doing this. He's using similes to reveal the pilgrim's inner landscape. He's using similes to connect the poem dramatically to classical literature and test the very limits of that connection and my knowledge of that connection. And he's using similes, simple ones, to give us comfort in highly charged imaginative scenes. As Inferno goes forward 
a new kind of simile begins to develop. And for lack of a better word, I'm going to call this the ironic simile. I'm at Canto 24. I'm at the opening lines of it. We're coming into the pit of the thieves and all of those crazy metamorphoses. And we get these opening lines. When the year's young in season, and the spray washes the sunbeams in Aquarius, and the nights dwindle south toward half a day, when the frost paints a copy on the ground of her white sister's snowy image, but her feather's sharpness doesn't last for long, the peasant lad who finds his fodder's low gets up and takes a look and smacks his thigh, thinking the countryside's all white with snow, goes inside grumbling, fretting up and down like a poor wretch who can't tell what to do, comes back out and puts new hope in his pack, seeing the world has changed its face so soon, takes his staff and drives his little flock to forage in the fields. So too with me. My teacher made me downcast for a while when I perceived the trouble in his brow, and then he laid the plaster on the sore. This simile that starts the descent toward the thieves is all about how Virgil was reprimanded by the hypocrites, was told, hey, you know, listen, uh, you believe the demons, buddy. And as the hypocrites say, I always heard that the devil was the father of lies. So what do you really know about how to conduct any kind of journey of hell? Virgil storms away angry Dante follows him. And now we have this simile of this peasant who comes out, sees the hoarfrost, thinks, ah, darn it, winter is still here. It's not yet spring, goes back inside, fusses around a bit, comes back out, sees the sun is out. The hoarfrost isn't snow. It's just hoarfrost. It's evaporated off the ground. Spring is here. And the sheep go out to the, to the meadows. And Dante here is revealing his inner landscape. So we would definitely say that this is part of a simile explaining the pilgrim's relief, his first frustration at Virgil's anger. And now as Virgil turns to him and smiles, his relief, ah, well, we're past that wintry moment. However, There is a deeper irony and a jarring irony going inside the passage because this peasant is being used before we get to this horrific scene of snakes and serpents and lizards and people changing places and evaporating or catching on fire and turning into a pile of ashes and then reconstituting or swapping bodies or swapping bodies with serpents. This peasant bit is so jarring. It's rustic, it's pastoral, it's gorgeous. And yet that rustic pastoral landscape is set in a very desperate spot in hell. The same thing happens with the false counselors. Remember, before we see Ulysses, we get this simile again about a peasant sitting on the hillside looking out at the fireflies that come out at night in the summer. These similes have a jarring irony about them. And it is interesting that as we go down through Inferno, we start to develop an undertow of ironic similes. These don't occur early on in Inferno. Instead, they seem to be more of the three types I outlined, emotional landscape of the pilgrim, balanced classical illusions, or simple similes to explain complicated imaginative landscapes. 
Dante becomes more certain or hell becomes more desperate and the similes themselves get more jarring. They get more full of irony. Why are we talking about peasants down here in these desperate places? Why are we offering pastoral visions almost out of Virgil's Georgics? Why are we giving these bucolic scenes in such terrifying places? This ironic, discordant simile begins to develop in Inferno. And one of the things that bothers many people is these ironic, discordant similes seem very modern. Okay, fair enough. But they will die out. They're going to die out in Purgatorio. We'll have a few early on and then fewer and fewer of them. And then by the time we get to Paradiso, we essentially don't have any ironic, jarring, discordant similes. Dante seems to be working this out as a real programmatic in the poem. And I think that we should see that we're coming to the limits of the ironic similes, which begin to develop about mid-inferno and then get most intense as we approach the bottom of hell. By the way, just as a side point, you know there is a weird peasant program that goes here. I mean, we have this peasant with the hoarfrost, we have the peasant with the fireflies, and then we just came off a passage in this podcast about those peasant women waiting for the gleaning while we're standing on the ice sheet. There is this weird peasant referencing that goes on at the bottom of hell. I have never seen anyone fully explore that peasant program. In Dante's studies, sometimes you refer to repeated images throughout comedy as a program. For example, there's a Dove program. There's a Jason and the Argonauts program. There seems to be developing a kind of space for jarring, discordant imagery toward the bottom of hell. As we approach the bottom of hell, we start to pick up something that will become increasingly important to us as we move through Purgatorio and Paradiso. This is connected to the emotional landscape similes. These are metaphysical similes. I'm at Canto 30. I'm at the back of Canto 30. It's the first of what will become many metaphysical similes. Here it is, line 133 down through oh, about 141. Oh, I should set the scene for you. This is when uh, Virgil reprimands Dante for paying too much attention to the insult match between Master Adam and Sinon. And we get this simile. And when I heard the anger in his, Virgil's voice, I turned with such embarrassment and shame, it haunts my memory still. But as a man who dreams disaster or a grievous loss, dreaming, he longs for it to be a dream, yearning for what's the case as if it weren't, so was I then, when I could not reply, wanting to make an apology, and I apologized indeed, unwittingly. This is, of course, connected to the pilgrim's inner landscape of being reprimanded by Virgil, but it is also a metaphysical simile about dreaming and the relationship of dreaming to reality and finding yourself in a dream that you recognize as a dream, but you wish you didn't know that you were dreaming or that you somehow are a divided consciousness inside of it. These metaphysical similes are now going to start proliferating ahead of us in comedy, and they are 
almost always connected to the emotional landscape of the poem. It's as if we took that emotional landscape simile and we made a further development of it. And now it's becoming kind of high level medieval. And this is too big a word. Notions of psychology. Medievals don't know about psychology, but medieval notions of what we would call psychology, what we would call the relationship between the physical and spiritual world. They wouldn't necessarily use those words either. These are similes that are oh, furthering that discussion in some way. And this is the first of what, again, will become many of them. And they are developments off the emotional landscape similes. One last form of simile before we end this episode of the podcast. We've just passed this. It's in Canto 32. And I think that this is a master stroke on Dante's part. This is a further development of the rather simple similes to describe complex imaginative landscapes. So we've come down to the ice sheet. We've got the heads about all sticking up out of the ice sheet. It's terrifying sequence. And then we get this simile that we passed that starts at line 31 of Canto 32. As the frog in the summer sits to croak his mug above the pond, while hazy dreams of gleaning come upon the peasant girls, so were the grieving spirits livid gray, fixed in the eyes up to where shame appears, chattering their teeth like storks that snap their bills." This simile is incredibly interesting because it is a rather simple double simile. reminds us of the double simile about birds, way up with the lustful, another way in which the ninth circle is connected to the circle of lust. But more than that, and this is what I find Dante particularly brilliant at, This simile doesn't really work. It appears to work, but it doesn't fully work. Look at it. As the frog in the summer sits to croak his mug above the pond. Okay, fair enough. So these heads are sticking out of the ice. And we're comparing that to a frog in a pond who's sticking just his head up and croaking. But frogs don't stick their heads out of ice. They wouldn't croak in ice. So while it's visually connected to the scene, it's not emotionally connected to the scene. Frogs sitting in the water, that's very summery, very springy. That's lovely. I mean, I have a creek that runs behind my house in New England in the early summer. The bullfrogs are crazy down there in that creek, and they're sitting there kind of in the mud and in the water, making noise, particularly at dawn and at dusk. But that doesn't take into account an ice sheet. And just so you don't miss it, Dante further complicates the simile. While hazy dreams of gleaning come upon the peasant girls, what does that have to do with what's going on here? Nothing. Those peasant girls are almost like an aside that is discordant and jarring, but it doesn't reveal really anything else here. Instead, we're making that scene with the frogs even more summery, even more glorious. Harvest and early harvest in the summer and the rustics coming out. Meanwhile, we're on a frozen sheet of ice with heads sticking out of it. What I want to say here is that we come down toward the center of hell and the similes slip. And we're going to come up against more of them. They slip. 
They become slightly discordant. They become jarring. They're all part of that jarring nature sometimes that the similes can take on in lower hell. But even more than that, they're disorienting. We have already had this. This doesn't just happen, I should say, at the bottom of hell. This happened with Brunetto Latini. When Brunetto Latini took off from Dante, remember, he was compared to running a famous race, you know, as somebody who runs off in a famous race trying to win the crown. And yet we have to keep telling ourselves, but wait a minute, Latini's damned and he's out on the burning sands. And this sounds like a heroic athlete figure running for the laurels at the end of Canto 15, but it's discordant. It's missing. It's jarring. The details don't fit exactly. That was perhaps the first time we find not just jarring ironically, but jarring as in the details don't quite fit. Now, when we come to lowest hell, we find these wild similes with almost diversions, gleaning peasant girls. What does it have to do with anything? How does that elucidate the scene in front of us? It it seems like, uh, to use a common term, a red herring being thrown out at us. Oh, I don't want to pay attention to that. I want to go back to paying attention to that. I she don't divert me over there. I think Dante is doing this intentionally. He's too good a poet not to. He's in fact fragmenting, making discordant. It's not just jarring. It's displaced. These similes are out of place, displaced, disjointed, fragmented, pulled into pieces because we're entering the center of everything and the baddest of the bad. I hope you enjoyed this interpolated episode of the podcast. Well, here with Dante, I just wanted to talk through various kinds of similes we've experienced in Inferno and that will continue ahead of us. Believe me, the inner landscape, the classically balanced, simple similes for imaginatively difficult landscapes, these will continue throughout Purgatorio and Paradiso without the ironic or discordant parts. Early on in Purgatorio, for the first few cantos, yes, discordant jarring. Then things will start to clarify by the time we get to Paradiso. Difficult subject matter, but the similes go back to a much simpler rubric because the subject matter itself is so difficult. To get to any of those spots ahead of us, you have to subscribe to this podcast. If you don't mind, please like it or rate it. I'd really appreciate that. And come back next time because we're going to continue walking. We have passed Kaina in the ninth circle of hell and we are on to the second subset. I'm Mark Scarborough. Keep those snow boots on for the next episode. Thank you.